Amen. Thank you, Bill. Word of the Lord is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay. <laughs> so my wife asked me this morning, what's your sermon about? I said, what's well, about how Jesus interacted with women? And she said, why? I love my wife. She keeps me on my toes. I was uh, struck as I went through the Gospels. This was, I don't know, a month or so ago. I was going through looking at all of the questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels. That was my last sermon. As I went through it, um, I also noticed uh, the different times he interacted with women. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees frequently. He spoke to his disciples almost constantly. Now, he spoke to large groups of people on occasion, and every once in a while he would speak to a particular man. But there are these instances where he speaks to women that seem to be special. I'm not exactly sure why, but they really stood out to me. So I started to catalog them. Came up with almost two dozen different instances where Jesus interacted with a particular woman or sometimes a couple of them, as in the case of Mary and Martha. And I think, as, as we go through these, you'll start to see this really is a, an in, to me, it's an interesting way to showcase God's character, the kind of father he is, the kind of protector and provider that he is. So, let's dive in to how Jesus interacted with women. If we can. Oh, that's backwards. There we go. <laughs> First, of course, there's Jesus' own mother. And this has to be weird, right? This woman, Mary, has as a son the Son of God. He's perfect. That's got to be weird for her. Nobody else in the history of all mankind has been through what she's been through. Who's she going to talk to about it? As early as age 12, she runs into some stuff. And this is after the angel and the flight to Egypt and the wise men, all those other crazy things that happen around Christmas time. But at age 12 in the temple, this is recorded in Luke 2, Jesus makes it very clear what his priorities are. Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I would have to be about my father's business or in my father's house? Age 12, and he knows what his priorities are. I don't know how most moms feel about their firstborn child, but I get the impression that they have a thing for them. Just a little bit. It's a big deal in the life of a mom, right? And Jesus here, after his mom spent three days searching for him, tearing her hair out, nervous wreck, 
And his first statement is, oh, I'm so sorry for your feelings. No, that is not what he says. He says, what's wrong with you? Uh, son, you want to try that again? Jesus' priorities are clear from the get-go. And it says he submitted to them, was obedient to them. Some translations say he was subject to them, meaning his parents. He was not insubordinate. But he was firm in his purpose. Lest we have any ideas that we can come to Jesus and turn him our direction by our own efforts. Jesus squashed that at age 12. After this, in John 2, there's the wedding at Cana. And he's a very capable young man. His mom's proud of him, right? She says, son, this big social event, right? Don't want to embarrass anybody. It's friends of the family. Son, they're out of wine. Help us out. Do something. And again, his first statement is not one of sympathy. His first statement is not, oh, okay. What has this request to do with me, woman? Where is the God of love? Right? He doesn't grant his mother's request right away, but he does grant it. And in an incredible fashion. He doesn't just provide just enough. No. Above and beyond. And not just kind of wine. This is the good stuff. The steward's like, holy cow, where'd you find this? I got to get me some of this. What has your request to do with me? Which was one of the questions that I talked about the last time. Indeed, what does wine have to do with Jesus? As it turns out, wine has a lot to do with Jesus. That part of his mission, it wasn't time for that yet, for the spilling of blood, but it's interesting that wine was one of his first major events. He, in Mark 3, because a friend of mine asked about this, and I couldn't find it until just the other day, his family thinks he's crazy. If you think about it, it's hard to blame them, right? So let's see. You're a skilled artisan, the oldest son in your family. So you're going to go wander off and be homeless and talk to people about stuff that no one understands. Sure, that's a great career choice, Jesus. They had to be scratching their heads about this a little bit. The Bible says that they didn't believe in him. And in Mark 3.21, they go to take him and lock him up to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. They go to restrain him, it says. He's in his hometown. There's so many people that they can't even get in the, the room to talk to him. And so... Messages get passed down the hallways and through the windows and doors. And Jesus, your mother, your brothers are outside. They would like to talk to you. And again, he doesn't, he doesn't start the way we would start, right? With, 
Oh, can, can you tell them wait five minutes? I'll be right out. Nope. Oh, everybody, step aside. My family, right? My mother, my, come on in. To, no, doesn't do that either. Who are my mother, sisters, and brothers? These who do the will of my father are my mother, sisters, and brothers. I'm not a mom. But it looks to me like that's got to weigh heavy on Mary's heart, dealing with those things. In spite of how proud she must be of him, in spite of the great influence that she can see that he has and the great good that he's doing for her people. He is not putting her feelings on a pedestal. And then, on the cross, John 19, in the midst of the most terrible suffering that we can even imagine, woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. Take care of her. In spite of all that must have had his attention at that moment, cares for his mother. That had to mean a lot to her too. So there's his mother. And I'm sure there was a lot more to her story than what I've covered here, but he always addressed her. He didn't ignore her. But as much as he obviously loved and cared for her, he stayed focused on his father first. In John 4, we see him interact with the Samaritan woman at the well. And again, we find something we don't expect. He teaches, he corrects misconceptions, wants her to know the truth. He directly addresses her sinful situation. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't give her any excuse for it. But then he moves right on by because he knows what she really needs. She needs him. And so he focuses on helping her to see that and to have what she really needs. And after she becomes his follower, she goes and brings the whole town to hear him. She must have had some serious influence. Samaritan village, woman with five husbands, yeah, they probably knew who she was. I don't know of anyone with five husbands. Well, my grandmother's had four, but... <laughs> Fascinating account. That he would give her exactly what she needs, even though she doesn't know she needs it. And as soon as he does, she immediately goes and tells everybody else. And she must have had some kind of influential force because they all come out to see for themselves. 
Luke 8, 2 refers to Mary Magdalene as the one out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. If you watch the TV series The Chosen, first episode, first season, deals with Mary Magdalene's backstory. And of course, it's entirely fictional, speculative, all that. But it really points to God's care. We matter to him. All the little things matter to him. And she didn't have little things. She had big ones to deal with. And she's so important that after the resurrection, she's one of several women who have been devoted the whole way, crying at the cross, bringing spices and linen in which to bury him, hanging around the tomb and coming to the tomb to add more, even though they have no idea how they're going to roll the stone away. And he's alive again, and he, he calls her by name. Mary, why are you crying? Who do you seek? Mark 5 and Luke 8 both record the interaction of the woman with the flow of blood. Now, if I'm Jairus, and I've set aside the busyness of my day to go and seek Jesus because, dang it, my daughter's life is on the line, and glory be, Jesus has said he's going to come and heal her. Woohoo! We've got hope now. And in the middle of that life and death journey, you can imagine Jairus pulling Jesus' arm along. Jesus stops the whole procession. Says, Who touched me? He knows who touched him. What's he doing? And why would he stop that procession? Someone's life's on the line. Jesus, what's wrong with you? Who touched me? Come here. Tell your story. We don't have time for this. Yes, we do. So what, you're just going to raise her from the dead? Because she's going to be dead by the time we get there. Actually, it's exactly what he's going to do. This woman, flow of blood, for years spent everything she had, could not get any better. Jesus wants her to tell that story because it's not the same story now. When she goes home, she's got something different to tell people. And not just when she goes home. Now all the people in the crowd have something different to tell people. Full story. Full glory to the Father. I have felt like Jairus probably did. Where I'm like, why in the world, God? This doesn't make sense. Something good could have been done and you didn't do it. What the heck? But Jesus doesn't say, well, so much for that one. We'll go this way. No, he continues the journey to Jairus' house. Jairus has to be scratching his head now. The mourners and the wailers laugh at him because she's dead. It's done. Death is final. 
Don't you get it? Actually, it's not. We don't get it. He raises Jairus' daughter. What a story she must have to tell. And I love this. First thing, because she's 12 years old, when she gets up, he says, make sure you give her something to eat. Teens got to eat, man. And dying must take something out of you. Matthew 15 and Mark 7 record an interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. Again, Jesus focused on his mission. I'm not sent to the Gentiles. I'm sent to God's people first. But she persists. Jesus values persistence. He tells a parable about a woman who's persistent in order to encourage people not to give up in prayer. And he grants this woman's request because of her persistence. And here's some more. In Luke 7 and John 12, two different women are recorded who wiped his feet and anointed him with perfume. And both of them get judged by the people around them. What are they doing? If Jesus were really a prophet, oh, whoa, hang on now. Getting dangerous here. If Jesus were really a prophet, he would know that this woman's a sinner and he wouldn't like it. Actually, there aren't any non-sinners to be had, are there? Parable about the 99 sheep that don't need rescuing, there aren't any. There's only lost sheep in the world. Jesus sees what these women are doing. He appreciates their sacrifice because it is a sacrifice. It's something really expensive that they're doing for him. He acknowledges it. He honors them with his attention. And he defends them from the people who are judging them. You notice he doesn't directly address the women in these situations. He doesn't say, why, thank you. Oh, that smells nice. He says, leave her alone. She's doing something good. Back off. John 8, the woman condemned for adultery. And again, Jesus completely ignores her at first. Ignores her, ignores her situation, and deals with the other sin that's present that nobody wants to talk about. All the condemnation by the crowd. Let he who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Oops. Logs and specks, right? After they are alone, then Jesus says two things that don't really seem to go together. The church and the world both like to try to keep them separate. Has no one condemned you? No, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. Sometimes we get focused on the neither do I condemn you, go. And we stop right there. Mercy, redemption, forgiveness. Yay. Do whatever you like. Wait a minute. He didn't stop there. And sin no more. He calls sin, sin. It's ugly. He doesn't blow past that. But he also doesn't stop there either. He doesn't just say, man, you messed up. You better stop. Go. Neither do I condemn you. We have an awful hard time with our very feeble brains putting these things together. Justice and mercy. Free will and predestination. Which one is it? Yes. Wait, what? How does that work? I'm not sure we can answer the how question, but we know that it does. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, which makes it look like it's all on us. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good will, which makes it look like it's all on him. What if it's both? Hmm. This happens a lot with Jesus. Render therefore to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God. What? That's not what I asked. But it's the answer we need. Jesus said both because he meant both. Mark 12 and Luke 21 record the widow with the two mites. And again, Jesus does not address her. Doesn't speak to her, doesn't say, oh, you don't have to do that. He doesn't say, quick, Judas, give her some money. Doesn't say that. Doesn't address that. Points out to his disciples that as a percentage of her income, This woman is given so much more than anyone else. They, out of their excess, their abundance, have given some. She, out of her poverty, has given everything. Jesus doesn't try to stop her. But he calls it what it is. Luke chapter 7, the widow of Nain. Lost her husband, lost her son, much like Naomi from the Old Testament. Jesus raises her son from the dead. And wow, what a story they've got now. And then he presents him to his mother. He gets it. He sees it. He knows and understands where we are. Sometimes better than we do. In fact, always better than we do because he made us and he sees us on the inside. Sometimes I feel like um, I try to hold Jesus' hand and walk him through my life and I realize I've got a blindfold on. 
and that it should be the other way around. He should be walking me. Matthew 8. As soon as Jesus finds out that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, he goes in, touches her. Fever leaves her. She gets up, serves them. There have been a lot of jokes made about mothers-in-law, most of them derogatory. It's not Jesus' perspective at all. He addresses what she needs. And then in Luke 10, the famous passage about Mary and Martha. I bet that there are many, many attacks on your quiet time with your Savior each morning. Some of them are probably in your own mind. Maybe like Martha, you're very much aware of social expectations, logistical issues, things like that. Maybe it's your kids interrupting you. Maybe it's your job interrupting you. Maybe it's the enemy. Maybe it's hard to tell the difference. But when Mary sat down with Jesus, he allowed her to stay and not to have to stand up and do all the good and necessary tasks that were expected of her. Jesus is more important than any task or expectation. We must not forget it or we will put on the throne of our lives a very oppressive kind of God. And Jesus never told Martha her tasks were wrong. He never said she shouldn't be doing them. What he pointed out was that she was worried and troubled by them. He said that even though Mary was in the middle of these tasks, I'm sorry, Martha was in the middle of these tasks, Mary did not have to join her. So not the way I find myself responding. My first response is, oh, I'm so sorry. Here, let me help. Jesus, again, focused on very different priorities. This is what Mary needs. In fact, Martha, you could probably use some of it yourself. Jesus is not primarily concerned about the tasks. If Mary had joined Martha, Martha likely would have shared her stress with Mary. Jesus wanted to share his peace with them both, right where they were. Having Mary's help wasn't the answer that Martha needed. Having Jesus' peace was. Matthew 20 and Mark 10 record the mother of James and John coming to Jesus in a way that nobody else ever did, as far as we know. She makes a request, and then again, Jesus immediately ignores her and speaks to her sons instead. He listens to the request and then addresses the sons and immediately transfers the responsibility to them. Are you able to bear? You will. But he doesn't, as far as we know, talk to the mom anymore after that. 
It's one of the hardest things about being a parent is letting your kids go, especially when God calls them to something that you don't agree with, you don't like. It's not safe. It's not comfortable. Dad, I'm going to go on a missions trip. Oh, where? (laughs) The Balkans. Oh, boy. Okay. Letting God take your sons and daughters away from where you can watch them and help them into a potentially dangerous situation where they're probably going to suffer. But they have to learn to grow up and walk with him, don't they? I don't want them walking with just me the rest of my life, right? God gives us children so we will learn how to be better children to him And so we will train our children to be ready to walk with him when he calls them, because he will. We can't hold them back. We've got to let them and even encourage them to walk with God on their own. Luke 11, 27 records a strange incident. There's this woman in the crowd who says, Blessed are the breasts that nursed you and the womb that bore you. Huh? You want to run that by? In fact, no, no, don't run that by me again. It's okay. Let's just ignore that one, shall we? No. Again, Jesus addresses the issue, the most important part. He says, more than that. So thank you, but there's more. That is not where we need to stop. That is not where we want our attention to stay. Yes, but blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Put your focus there. Man, I have a lot to learn. He doesn't ignore the compliment. But he wants everyone, again, to stay focused on what's most important. Luke 13 records the woman with an infirmity in the synagogue. Jesus goes into some detail about how important it is that she be seen as an equal. Equal to the men, equal to the healthy, equally deserving of any kind of healing power that's available. And again, he doesn't talk to her. He's talking to the crowd. And then he heals her, which was what she needed. Exactly what she needed. He gives testimony to God's purposes behind what we have all misunderstood. In Luke 23, he's on his way to the cross. Beaten, flogged, crown of thorns, all that stuff, carrying the cross. He's got to be really aware of physical pain in that moment. But he sees women lamenting him, and he addresses them. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. None of the thank you so much, but I'll be okay. Nope. Weep for yourselves. What in the world is that all about? The days are coming, he says, when they will say to the rocks fall on us and the hills hide us. 
He refuses to be distracted by the moment. Focused on his mission. Focused on what the people need most. Luke chapter 8 records other women who followed and supported Jesus' ministry. Because it matters who you support, doesn't it? It matters what group you join. It matters where you send your money. Your name might get listed somewhere. It happens in the uh, book of Acts later. Several women are listed as supporters of Paul's ministry. And then in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' ancestors, four women are named Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Actually, Bathsheba's name is not mentioned, but she's referred to un- unmistakably. Uriah's wife. All of them were either scandalous or damaged goods in some way. They were not nice, good Jewish girls. They weren't. So they get to be famous. Incest, prostitution, being widowed and a foreigner, husband murdered and adultery, all that's in there. Why? Because all of them were redeemed. And all of them helped to bring the redeemer of all into the world. What a testimony. Whoa, what did I do? Did I hit the wrong button? (laughs) Ah, thank you. (laughs) Got to learn how to use that lightsaber. What Jesus did when he addressed women, over and over he was firm in the truth and in his purpose. He never shied away from that. He did that with everyone he addressed. Male, female, group, single, didn't matter. He was always correcting the false beliefs. Belief is important. This is the work of God, that you believe on him who the Father sent. Believe. Do not fear, only believe. So we spent a lot of time in explaining the truth to help people get past those false beliefs that held them back. And sin is sin. That is the issue. If you don't deal with that, you don't have anything else worth talking about. And in spite of all these kind of hard things to have to get through. Jesus helps every time. Every time. Every time he interacts with one of these women, he brings help. He brings what is needed. It's interesting if you read through the Old Testament. There's laws to protect the unborn. That's where we get the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth phrase. It's not about punishing criminals. It's about protecting the unborn. 
if you attack a pregnant woman and you damage the child, then whatever damage they show when they're born, you get it too. God is about protecting the helpless. There were severe punishments for kidnapping, for adultery, because it's more often women who suffer from these crimes than men. God gave specific directions for caring for orphans and widows. It was his church that started a program to care for widows in the book of Acts. God had rules in place in the Old Testament for the care and security of unmarried daughters, female slaves, virgins, widows, and foreigners. There have been rules in place to care for these women for thousands of years because God made those rules. He cares for these women, and he insists that his people care for them too. God made women feminine, not merely human. There's value to that. Adam was created in the wilderness and brought to the garden. But Eve was created in the garden. Does that explain some things? Adam's curse was to work in response to his failure to act when his enemy attacked. Eve's curse was pain in the act that only she can do, childbirth, and which will mean so much to her relationship with each of her children for the rest of her life. This is in response to her failure to trust in God's provision and her vain attempt to find fulfillment on her own apart from her creator. And all the brokenness of this world reflects our own vain attempts to do the same. We all suffer because we all sin. But God. But God redeems the unredeemable. God forgives the unforgivable. God saves the worthless, doesn't he? He has redeemed both masculinity and femininity in Christ and has plans and roles and gifts for both of them. The church requires both because humanity has both. In the New Testament, there are specific passages and charges for wives, older women, younger women, single women, divorced women, women who became Christians while married to an unbeliever, and widowed women. That's pretty specific. Did he leave anybody out? God has plans for you women. Femininity is more than just functional in the church. It is valuable because God makes it so. Whoops, that's what I just covered, isn't it? Sorry, I try to have that because I know there's some of you out there that like to take notes like I do. Don't want you to fall behind. I've been told by my students for many years, Mr. Thorpe, you talk too fast. Sorry. I get excited. So just raise your hand and tell me, slow down. Okay. I can slow down. But with all that Jesus did to honor and acknowledge and elevate femininity, there's one thing he didn't do. He didn't change purposes. 
He never elevated women to authority over men in the home or in the church. In the New Testament, the focus for women is on children and family, good works, other women, and hospitality. If you look to the Old Testament, the focus is much the same. Paul and Peter specify the same roles in their letters. This principle is consistent with the Old Testament leadership of God's people that God established and sustained. And while he elevated the value of women in the midst of cultures that devalued and dehumanized them, he did not change them into something else. In the Old Testament, Deborah and Jael, Rahab and Ruth, Esther and Hannah, Abigail and Gomer, all bear witness to the affirmation that God gave to women by his specific redemptive care for them. There are some cultures that still treat women as property today. In the USA and industrialized world, we drive headlong into a different ditch. Gender confusion and role switching, we try to say that anyone can be both genders or either gender, but all these attempts fall short of either one. In pop culture, women are encouraged and even provoked to try to be men and hate men, to punish men and benefit from men, treating them in any way except the way that works because it gives men what they need and want, respect. Women are told to do anything to get power and control instead of trusting God to provide what women need and want, which is love and security. That same lie from the Garden of Eden is still at work. So in each of these cases from the Gospels, Jesus gave what each woman needed. But it wasn't usually what they were expecting. He addressed them as women and as individuals. He addresses each of us as an individual with all of our unique characteristics. Our Redeemer calls us to be what we were always meant to be, not what is easy, what is popular, or what will give us what we think we want, but what will make us like Him, what will bring out the best in us and bless those around us, what will challenge us and remind us that we cannot be anything good or admirable apart from our Creator, that we have no purpose, no identity apart from His purposes for us and His identity. In Him we live and move and have our being, like the song said earlier. In the body of Christ there is a place of honor for the woman, a place of honor for the man. And even though they're not the same place, there is enough humility for both. God always knows what he is doing. Don't think you can do better than God. Look what happened to Satan, to Adam and Eve, to all of us when we buy into that lie. Woman is the glory of man as man is the glory of God. Let us walk in the truth. and We will have fellowship with one another. And what a surprise the world will find when it looks at us and sees how the body of Christ honors godly femininity. Let's stand as we prepare to close.
Heavenly Father, thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices, so to speak, Father, but you